JC, you hear me? Yo, check us out. Chuck, the public enemy. Yo, what's up? This is DJ Yellow from the world's most dangerous group. What's up? This is DOC, the Diggy Diggy motherfucking doc. Yo, 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 what's up? This your boy, Z-Man. What up, dog? This is E-Shot. This is Jerry Helling, motherfucker. This your boy, DJ Paul, KOL for 36 Young Busy Ball. Vice World. This your man, Matt Mine, the hell raise up. Yo, this is DJ Ready Red. What up, what up, what up? This is the real Rick Ross, and you listen to me on the Murder Master Music Show.
starting out, the the whole break dancing was a, a big cultural thing there. So I hear the music that they the guys on, on the street would dance to, and it, it uh, came to be hip hop. But in, in the earlier form, it was more of an electro funk kind of sound. Um, but uh, of course, man, just early rap music when I started getting into buying rap tapes or, or even 45s back then. We had records even before tapes, but uh, I'd say it was uh, cats like Ice-T. Um, when the first Beastie album came out, the uh, the License to Ill album, that was a big one for me. That influenced me a yeah. lot. And uh, But it, everything, man. I mean, Run DMC, Fat Boys, all, all the old hip-hop, I was digging all of it, anything that would come out, I, I was up on it. Yeah, you 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 uh you were like me. You uh when you heard it, you were probably like, "Wow, what the hell is this? I really like it," and just just fell in love with it from <laughs> yeah. there. Absolutely, man, definitely. Now, this you said you were in Boston, um, different scene from uh, uh, Memphis, obviously. How how long were you in Boston yeah. growing up? I was in Boston five to six years um, from the time before I even started grade school. We were in Boston because I was born in Phoenix and then uh, moved with my family to Boston and um, and then it ended up living outside of the city of Boston. But um, initially we were there in Boston and I mean, that's where I was introduced to the music. But uh, five, six years there, then we ended up going out to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and that was a whole different scene out there. It really, when I got to Albuquerque, there was no real hip-hop scene whatsoever out there. I had to introduce uh, hip-hop and, and even groups that were out nationally. I had to introduce them to folks because they just weren't up on it. So you, you essentially kind of brought the hip-hop scene out there to uh, Albuquerque then? Man, I, I would like to think that, that I did. Um, I don't know if there were small pockets of other cats at that time uh, do, doing stuff, but I started real early with writing and recording. And so, um, man, recording from the time of fourth grade going into fifth grade and um, and then actually releasing something in Albuquerque in 92, which – I don't I don't believe there was anybody in the entire state of New Mexico releasing rap tapes at that point. No. No, that I mean, I mean I didn't hear nothing about Albuquerque till uh years later to when I discovered you, you know, in uh, Everlasting Drama. Um but that's that okay, so so you went from Boston to Albuquerque. Um at what point did you move to Memphis? 93 would have been Memphis and um that I came into Memphis already being an established artist to a point. I mean, nobody in Memphis knew who I was, but I did have tapes recorded somewhat pressed as best as we knew, knew how to press them. The uh J cards were kind of homemade and you know, little adhesive labels and so we we had uh, some tapes by the time I got to Memphis. And, um, man, I just remember getting out there, trying to network with folks and pass my tapes out. And um, folks were real receptive. Uh, 
when, when they saw that I was doing music. And um, I plugged into the scene pretty quick after getting to Memphis. So you you came to Memphis with music in hand already, which that was a plus, you know, because you had yeah. guys like at that time, of course, you know, uh, you know Paul and them we, we were just starting out. Gangster Pat had already had a major deal at that time, so uh, you were coming into a city that was coming into its own at at, at the same time, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did know who Pat was. Um, before coming to Memphis, I just didn't know he was from Memphis until I had uh, I signed with a label called OB Records at the time, and there were a few of us on that label. We, he had some good producers working with him on that label as well. But um, we had a show, and uh, it was me, Lady J, Big Mark, some of the – I think SMK was, was there with us possibly. And um, I just remember they were saying that we were going to rock a show with Gangster Pat, and the only gangster Pat I knew thought he was from L.A. because I saw his tape cover, and he had the curl, and he had the whole gangster, the West Coast gangster look. And so I just assumed he was from L.A., but then I, I just thought maybe there was another gangster Pat. But when we picked him up, our, our limo pulled up into where he lived at the time in, in Whitehaven. We called it Black Haven back then. And, uh, man, this we pulled up, this man come out, and I knew right away it was him. And so that's when I first found out Pat was actually from Memphis. Yeah. I didn't know where he was from until years later myself. Um, I kind of thought he was like a, uh, heavily influenced by DJ Quick because, you know, he had the gangster groove, Quick hit Quick's groove. Oh, yeah. But um, uh, he came out at the same time, though, you know, um, right, right, right around, uh, yeah, 91, you know. So, oh, that's dope. So you you knew right away that was Gangster Pat. Um, yeah. Did you get a chance to uh, you know see him work or, or do any production? Uh, yeah, I did actually, but it was years later. Um, I had a group called Second Family, and I was over in Southern Hills. Uh, Pat, we lived, we were both lived in the same area of Memphis, uh, which was Whitehaven, and um, I was over in Southern Hills. He was in Red Oaks over by the airport. So uh, one of my artists from Second Family was real close with Pat, and he was kind of double-dipping. He was Pat's artist and my artist at the same time. He was um, the extended part of my group, Second Family, but he was also working with Gangsta Pat under a group called Die Hard Organization, and his okay. name was Lil Rock. Oh, okay. Yeah, so and uh, so – Mutual so artist. I, I'd go over there to. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, brother. No, I just said a mutual artist. Yeah, yeah. It. it I mean, I I thought he was with, rolling with me and and with Playlistic, but he was still over there working with Pat. So I would go pick him up, and he'd be like, "Yeah, we're we're in here working." And so I remember a couple times going in there, hanging out, seeing Pat do his thing, you know, with with Little Rock and um. And Pat was making some incredible tracks. He was really good on that production. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. When did you pick up? Uh, I mean, you said you was you know you came to Memphis with music in hand. Were you already producing out in Albuquerque? A little bit, not much. Um, I did. I was blessed on my first tape. 
to uh, meet a guy who was actually in a, a rock band, and he was a producer for a rock group. And he worked at the uh, at Grandma's Music and Sound out there, which was where you would buy audio gear. And I would go in there all the time and just pick up little pieces and try to figure out how to build this studio so I could do all my own recording. And and he showed me how to work a four track, and he was he introduced me to the four track. But then he'd break out a drum machine. He'd go grab a keyboard, and this is all gear that was there on the floor at uh, at Grandma's Music. And um, man, we ended up recording my what became my first tape there in in the back room of that store with, with the gear oh, wow. that he was selling. Yeah, so it ended up my first tape ended up having a, a cool little sound. I mean, you listen to it now, and it's like, ooh, that was back way back in the day, four-track, analog. You could tell it's old, but it sounded much better than some of the stuff that I went on to do myself when I plugged up in my bedroom. And, man, I, I recorded um, with a mic into a mixer, and I, I was recording breakbeats. I would get breakbeat records on vinyl, and I would literally play the vinyl and have the mic plugged in and then run everything to my two-track, my double cassette uh, recorder, and I would just record like it was a live show. And that's how I did my, my first two albums. Oh, wow. Wow, that's that's amazing right there. <clears throat> that's kind of like uh, when we were interviewing Esham, I remember him telling us he went in, he didn't have uh, enough studio time or enough uh, money to, you know, so they had to, I guess, record the whole album, Booming Words from Hell, in one block, you know, over wow. the course of, of a day or so. And then I heard later on K. Lou, uh, they did the Ice Cream Man over the course of a weekend, you know. Uh, oh, but that's man. nothing new to you. You're you're doing you're already doing that. You're starting off doing that. Um, did the production come easy for you um, over the course of time? As easy as the rapping did, or which was, which was easier um, for you? Well, the the rap was pretty came pretty natural for me um it was something i just loved doing and i started writing at such a young age man uh, that i was able to learn to write and freestyle i got into battle rapping early on so it it just kind of came more naturally the production was a little more difficult but i was kind of forced into production and um it's not something that i aspired to do it wasn't it wasn't a goal of mine I would have rather had somebody producing tracks and me be the MC, but um, man, it got to the point where folks <laughs> they kind of were were busting me over the head on beats, you know, back then. Which really, looking at it now, it wasn't that expensive. But man, when you're young, I was I was a teenager. I was a young teenager. I didn't have that kind of money, so. Um, even though a lot of them were working with me, I, I still couldn't afford it. So I. I was forced to try to get a little equipment together, and I, I just remember hitting hitting a pawn shop in Frazier in uh, the North Memphis area. And, uh, man, dude at that pawn shop really hooked me up and took care of me. I got my first 660, uh, Dr. Rhythm 660, from that pawn shop, and then I got my Insonic VFX, which ended up being that just staple for me in production. That was my board, my sound even to the point where when that board went out, I had to get another one just like it. And uh, 
that's that's what I did. I stuck with that VFX for years. So when you hear those old King JC tapes, you hear those synth sounds. Those are all coming off the Insonic VFX. Oh yeah, that's uh, uh, you know what I'm saying. And, and the the music that people don't realize, we're getting ready to play some of it tonight. It's super super rare, super collectible, and you got some plans for it. We're going to talk about that real soon. Um, but let's give them let's give them one of these dope tracks. I got three of them loaded up tonight. I want to let you pick, JC. Um, I got Guess Who's Back. I got Step to Drama, and I got the Boogeyman Part Two. Uh, which one do you want to roll with Ooh. first, brother? Ooh, let's let's go with that Boogeyman Two. Uh, I love that joint. Tell tell them about this one, man. So Boogeyman Two was uh, originally I I had the original Boogeyman on my number nine tape, and uh, just got such a good feedback off that one that I just I wanted to do another one for uh for the next tape and I ended up getting that sample off of the first Elm Street movie which I had had the idea for years when uh Nancy walking down the street and that little piano is going I think it's the next day after Tina got killed and uh man I heard that piano even as a kid and I knew I wanted to someday do something with that so uh, I used that piano, looped it, added a couple more sounds, uh, and then did a, a very unique drum pattern on it, which was either the 660 or the DR5. I, it was one of those drum machines. The second I hear it again, I'll, I'll remember which one it is. All right, here we go. This is the Boogeyman Part 2, King JC, right here on the Murder Master Music Show. We'll be right back. Southwest bound, this bitch down. 
so I don't know the things that you know and making you a little hoe. A real street poet from the desert land with the skill to make you crash with my bare hands. You jealous of my beat, you can't comprehend how I make them so damn hard. I'm the boogeyman. When I come to get you, when I make you bounce, I be. When I get crooked. up right there king jc the boogeyman part two um man that definitely definitely got that hardcore vibe to it were, were you influenced a little bit by um uh gangster nip maybe the ghetto boys chucky and things like that uh definitely ghetto boys yeah for sure it i didn't hear gangster nip till a little later but um ghetto boys yes early on i was i was up on some ghetto boys for sure Oh yeah, assassins and yeah, different things. Yeah, uh, yeah, the Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, you know, and the beat going on there too. Uh, I always found that horror movies had great samples for beats. You know, Phantasm. Um, yeah. What was some other good ones? Uh, man, uh, Return of the Living Dead. I don't know if you've ever sampled any anything off that. Um, I didn't from that one, no, but I I wore out Phantasm, though. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, um, now when you touched down in Memphis, you know, uh, what was it like uh, adjusting the life there? Was it pretty rough for you at that time in the early 90s? Um, It was, I was just young, and so I was just a knucklehead, and I, I got into un- necessary trouble and that it just if I could redo it over things would have been so different you know um and I think about that a lot man if I could have done things different I would but uh just being young I think I made some bad choices and uh, I should have been more focused on on my music and and business uh, more focused than I was um but touching down in, in Memphis um I definitely thought the Memphis sound of what it was back then was different. It it was unique. Um, But I don't think I was immediately influenced by it. I think over the years, it definitely has rubbed off on me. But uh, early on, I I think I had a pretty different sound than uh, what a lot of the early Memphis rappers had. And uh, even the early Memphis rappers had a different sound than what it evolved into. And uh, yeah. and I, I've actually talked, had conversations with Al and Zerk about that. So, and they've explained it pretty good to me. I think they make a great argument of why that was. But, um, yeah, you, I think if you listen to the rappers that went national early on, it, they did kind of have more of a West Coast sound at first. And and then yeah. that evolved to being more of what became Memphis rap. But uh, I think it just was an industry thing. They were trying to really 
fit in into the industry of what will get played, what what's marketable. And Memphis didn't have that sound yet nationally, so it was almost like the national stage wasn't ready for that sound yet. But when they realized that, man, that we, we're not really getting that kind of love anyway, I, man, we're just going to do what we do, I think that's when it started to take off for them, and they really – came out of that shell and really were able to um, develop that, what became that Memphis sound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you were putting out tapes, like I said, at the same time that, uh, you you know, Al Capone, uh, Skinny Pimp, uh, MC Mac, uh, Paul, yeah. and, and Lucy, and, and Lord Infamous. Um, yeah. What was it like, you know what I'm saying, um, you know, not not really being competition with those guys, but let's say peers with them uh, at that time. Like, uh, did you have any memories or recollections of maybe um, running into three, six or any of those guys? Oh, absolutely. With three, six, definitely. Um, when, when I got to Memphis, I didn't know who they were. And um, I spent a good deal of time in Memphis and then went back to Albuquerque, still not knowing who three, six was. I, I brought some music back to Albuquerque with me, and I remember bringing Al Capone, Indo uh, G, and Lil Blunt just dropped their uh, antidote. And so I brought yeah. that out there. And then I spent, I think I was out in Albuquerque for about six months. Then I came back. And when I came back to Memphis, that's when I heard 3 6. And man, it was. They were taking over the town in uh, late 94, man. They were, I mean, saturating the streets of Memphis with underground tapes. They were dropping, like, new volumes constantly. And, um, man, it was amazing. Uh, I can't remember the first one I actually heard. Somebody gave it to me. And, um, man, it had to be one of those. Paul and Juicy tapes or Paul and Infamous tapes, one of those volumes. And it blew me away, man. I said, wow, this is a different sound. 3-6 really brought something to Memphis that was very Memphis in its own. Like if you're from Memphis and you know how Memphis rolls from the slang and the the way we operate in the streets, 3-6 brought that and, and put it on tape. And it, it's amazing how they captured that. But, um, that uh, when that Mystic Styles hit, I remember they had that single. Uh, the summer was on, on the radio. It, it was like one of the first um, Memphis rap, rap hits to really take over the radio. I mean, there was Indo G and Blunt and Eight Ball and MJG. They had some songs on the radio before that, but the summer man really took to the the local charts on the local radio station and really blew up. But I man, I remember running in. To those guys all the time in the streets. Um, I think the first time I actually met them was Skinny Pimp had a tape shop in Frazier, and um, which be- ended up Oscar Barnes, the label I was signed to, he ended up taking over that shop and turned it into like a cell phone shop or a pager shop or something. But um, I remember going into that shop and uh, to holler at Skinny and all three six was in there and but they were really young guys at that time um i mean we had to be all about the same age but i I just remember seeing a bunch of young dudes in there uh, about my age and uh 
man, just talking to them and and then finding out, oh wow, that's I, I think it was Skinny who told me, well, yeah, that's I know Juicy was there. Um, I imagine Paul was there, and maybe Lord Infamous, and they were all hanging out with Skinny in there. So that that's the first time I actually met him, and then uh, I ended up moving to Southern Hills in 96 maybe around 96 and dj paul lived right behind uh southern hills and so his uh i think it was his cousin lived in southern hills with us uh little buck and he would come over there with buck all the time and ride through he had an orange suburban at the time and i'll just never forget that paul coming hanging out with us and we used to love to chop it up with him. And uh, that even led to me getting some production from him. So um, at the time, Paul, even though 3-6 was national, Paul still was messing with some of us local guys in, um, on production. And he, he wasn't charging the extreme price that you, you could imagine he might be able to charge. And, and so, but it was reasonable. He was messing with us, I think, because we were from Southern Hills. We were from his his hood, and man, he I remember getting beats from Paul for a hundred and fifty dollars each. Wow! And yeah, and I mean, that's that was actually cheaper than Blackout was charging at that time, because uh, Blackout was charging us two fifty a track, and so I, I couldn't couldn't mess with him as much. Wow, but, um, you know those prices are yeah. the same now. That's for sure. With oh Paul, man, those know. prices hadn't been the same since '96. '96, '97. Yeah, it's, I think after literally that, right uh, after that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That world domination hit. I think that kind of changed everything, you know. And um, man, they hit a, a whole other level of success. And yeah, things changed. Rightly so. What was know. what Jay? What was some of the um, beats you wrapped over on Paul's beats? Um, so Paul had hooked me up with a couple different, I got a couple different beats from Paul. And, um, when we were putting together my number six album, we ran into some problems because, uh, Oscar Barnes, I was recording with him and I was trying to get Paul to come over there and dump the track. But he, I remember he just handed me the track on a cassette tape. And, um, so it it really didn't play out the way I wanted it to. And uh, I ended up with just a bad mix, a bootleg copy of number six straight out the studio where uh, Oscar Barnes just kind of handed me a tape and he was supposed to put it out. But um, man, he, he didn't put it out. And so I got frustrated. So I messed around and put out the next episode on my own, uh, which was number seven. So he was supposed to put out what would have been my, number six album and wow. dragging his feet taking forever he didn't do that so i put out number seven and so the the production that had paul's tracks on it just sat in oscar Barnes' studio for a long time and um when we put out the i finally got a copy of the tape we put it out it, it wasn't what i was hoping for it was bad mixes bad copies so i had um ended up getting what would have been the the real tape the master tape but by that time i was already moved on into i hooked up with dj trick by that time we were already recording on a bigger level 
So I never went back and, and ended up releasing those songs rightly until now. I'm getting ready to do that. And um, I, I don't know if oh. we get into all that, what we're getting ready yeah, to do. But yeah, yeah. Uh- you're gonna have that Paul beat on the on the wow. You're gonna actually go back and kind of uh, get redemption with that number six, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Because it'll be the way it was supposed to come out um, with with the remix on on the actual masters from the masters. So that's been something that I've wanted to do for years but um, just hadn't really been able to get that done. And so it, it'll be cool to finally do that along with other things. There's albums that I still have not released yet, um, my number 17 being the biggest one where people still, this many years later, still hit me up asking about that album. And it was definitely the best work I had ever done. That number 17 album was crazy, and I always hated that it never saw the light of day that I couldn't put that out until uh, now. Number 16 so that was one. Anna Off My Chest, right? Yeah, that was the one that ran through Selecto, and we had great distribution on that. It did good numbers, and it, it actually reached out there. Um, and then number 17 was called My Curse, and that was a follow-up to uh, Anna Off My Chest. And I had been through some bad experiences at that time so the whole album is like a lament of all those the what i was going through at that time which included some really hard personal stuff and uh and family stuff as well so all that's on that album so i just um unleashed the the beast of uh, on the mic but it was i had to get that stuff off my chest just to uh, maintain my sanity but it made for a great album yeah, they always say the best music comes from pain. Um, yes, yes. Um, but this album, seventeen. Uh, why didn't uh, Why didn't you ever release it? Well, partly what I was going through. I did have my studio, and I had access to record music. But um, man, I, I don't know how much of my story that I've shared with you in the past, but. Um, at that time, after Ann Off My Chest came out, um, I was on a promo tour when I got some bad news about uh, who who is my, now my ex-wife, um, that she was facing fed time. She had got caught up in some, some mess, some bad stuff. And I was on the road, wasn't knowing about it, but then I ended up getting that call and saying, man, she was getting ready to 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 be locked up. And she was facing some years. And so I, I had to come back to Memphis, off, come off the road completely. And that's kind of why Anna off my chest ended up stalling out. It it was doing real good, and it started to climb, 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 and then, boom, it stalled out. And that was because I had to come off the road, and I couldn't promote, and I couldn't do shows, and I couldn't do none of that anymore because I came back to Memphis to be with my kids while all this was going on, while she was in court. And um, she ended up doing close to 10 years fed time so i was raising my babies man i had to pull away from the music for a bit yeah absolutely and completely understandable i mean uh you know sometimes life intervenes um yeah yes sir you know but uh yeah that's that's a deep story right there um so now you're getting ready to re-release all this stuff that's never seen the light of day um 
tell me how you're going to go about doing this. Is it going to be CDs, physical, digital? I've actually – well, say that again, brother. I was just going to say, is it going to be physical, digital, CDs? Uh, uh, How how are you going to do this? Well, so uh, that's twofold. We have actually – I don't know if you're familiar with Trill Hill tapes, which um, he's a brother that has – he presses and he does reissues of old, rare underground tapes. And um, what I like about Trill is he preserves the original sound, the way it's meant to be sound. And um, but and he also does short runs, so he may do press like 250 copies, and once they're gone, they're gone. So it's a chance for the true collectors to get a hold of those tapes and have them the way they were meant to be. Um, so I, I've done some uh, reissues with him. Um, they haven't dropped yet, but uh, we've done that, and I think there's more in the works. So we're we're going to be working together for a while, I'm sure. To, to bring physical copies of a lot of those old underground tapes. But um, the the other deal that I've been working on is um, bringing the entire playlistic catalog out to, to see the light of day, which is something that never really been done. Um, there's albums within my label's catalog that has never seen the light of day, many of them. Uh, my number 17 being one, um, another collection of songs that I did that really never made any of my albums. And the plan was to put those out as bonuses on CD re-releases. That that never happened. And so I've got a collection of those songs that really never seen the light of day. And um, DJ Trick and I also produced an entire album on Everlasting Drama which that's going to be on there too, unreleased Everlasting Drama after the the old stuff we did. So that's going to be dope. And then there's also some, um, yeah, well after Time's Up. This was years after Time's Up. We did an album with DJ Trick, myself doing the production. And um, and we had Misfit on there. Me, DJ Trick actually is rapping on there with us. And um, man, it's, it's incredible. And then we also, I got some second family unreleased stuff that's never been heard that's going to be part of this collection and um i've for years there's been different people who have hit me up wanting to buy the entire catalog but uh man they they just weren't they they were thinking i was not going to do anything with it i'm just sitting on it so they'd be like man three thousand dollars four thousand dollars i'm sitting there thinking for, for the entire catalog that just doesn't even make any kind of good business sense, you know? And, um, yeah, so it it just, it, I wasn't willing to do that. And, uh, so I never got around to doing that. And I'm grateful now because there's an opportunity that came up, um, to do something that's really never been done before on this level in this space. And, um, this is involving the, the crypto world, uh, blockchain and NFTs, which, um, man, I'm going to be 100% honest, just starting right here with that. I don't know really much about that, and I didn't even know what an NFT was a month ago. Well, about maybe two months ago, I didn't know what an NFT was. And so this is all new for me, and I've had to do some quick research and a lot of reading on it. 
but uh, there's a, a company that approached me who have done some serious research, and um, I know that they're really interested in the Memphis underground scene and, and what's been done in Memphis, but they also were interested in me personally because of my catalog, the fact that I had so much music. Um, they want to present a collection. Um, so it's going to be done uh, as NFTs, but with all these extra bonuses packed into the NFTs. How they do that, I don't I don't know. But I've read the, the contract and proposal, and, man, it's amazing. It's, it's, if we pull this off and, and this gets executed the way it, it looks on paper, it's going to be historic because it's, it's going to be something that's never been done on this level. Sounds very, very innovative, um, and I really, really wish you nothing but the best with that because um, <clears throat> it's a great way to introduce the classics to the world all over again, plus those unreleased gems you're talking about. I'm going to go into uh, another song, then uh, the homie Sin from France. I know he's got a few questions for you. Um, but, man, I don't know if it was you. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Um might have read this in an interview. It might be somebody else entirely. Um, was mm-hmm. it you that that survived a gunshot wound to the head? Oh man! Yeah, where did you hear that? Well, I might have. T- I might have talked to you about that. You might have told me. I mean, I'm, we've known yeah. each other a good what, twenty years. It might. I don't even know where it's coming from. <laughs> but I just yeah. No, I know Gangster Pat survived a gunshot, lazy bone. But um, I I could have sworn. Yeah. So. It must have really happened then. Yeah, brother, you are absolutely right about that. That happened in 97 in Frazier. And, um, man, what a terrible time of life. And, again, that had to be that, – that had to deal with me being a knucklehead and being in the streets and just doing stupid stuff I had no business doing dumb. You know, that's one of those moments. If I could have changed it, I would, but – it did happen, and I just thank God every day, man, that, you know, I'm, I'm still living. I'm still here to even be talking to you right now because, that, yeah, that was a, a bad situation, and it, and it should have been much worse than it was. Um, yeah, I, I, I will say that that was the moment I did fully get out the streets, and I, I went full focus on music after that. I didn't mess off in the streets anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we interviewed uh, Drop One Scott, and uh, he told me, uh, you know, somebody attacked him with a baseball bat and uh, fractured his skull in several places. And he knew, you know, that the the water in the bay was cold. He's like, if I jump in the water, it'll control the swelling in my brain, so I don't, you know, die. And uh, that's what saved his life. Uh, how bad was it? Like, were you in the hospital for a long time? Uh, um, no, no, not for a long time. I, I was in the hospital, but no, with me, again, this is just, I feel like the Lord had me and protected me because uh, dude had the pistol to my forehead. And uh, and altogether, there was about five guys, and they had surrounded me. I was sitting in a, and I was with one of the original members of second family, even before we did killers from the black side, when we were first getting things together and uh, I was dropping him off. He was going in to take care of some business, something 
again, probably had no business doing, and I was out in the car waiting on him. He had a pistol on him. I did not. And um, when he left, I was sitting in that car. I was a sitting duck in, in a place I had no business being. And, uh, man, these dudes just came surrounding my car. And uh, I had my windows down. Car wasn't even started, so I knew. That I was like, I'm done. I knew they got me. And uh, they pulled me out of the window of the car. Didn't even give me a chance to, like, open the door or nothing. They just pulled me out of the, the driver's side window. And, uh, man, they kept wanting me to get down on the ground, but I, I felt so vulnerable. Like, if I was to lay down on the ground, it was over. And I just couldn't force my body down. And so I, I was kind of squatting, but I didn't want to. Uh, leave my feet because I felt like if, if I still have my feet under me, I, I can run if I need to or do something. You know, I wasn't thinking straight. And um, they got frustrated and they kept trying to push me to the ground. I, I wouldn't go. And man, that's when I just the pop and the pressure on, on the front part of my head, uh, right at my hairline. The bullet did not penetrate my skull. I don't know if it was the way he was holding it, but it did fracture my skull, but it didn't go in to my head. And, um, man, it was just blood everywhere, but there was no bullet in my head. I didn't know that at the time. So I was freaking out. And um, I just remember just all that blood and, man, those dudes going through my car, and then they all just ran off and – Man, I remember, like, the, the police coming, the ambulance coming, and then going to um, Methodist South in, in Whitehaven. So I went from uh, Fraser all the way to, to Whitehaven. And I was like, that's when I knew it couldn't have been as serious as, you know, I was I was thinking it was. But, um, yeah, I, I spent, like, that evening and the next day in the hospital, and they cleaned it up and um, wrapped it up. And they just didn't want me to go to sleep that night because it was a, a bad head injury. And so they they kept me up, wouldn't let me sleep, and I remember that. But uh, blessing, brother, huge blessing because yeah, that could have gone so differently. Yeah. Absolutely, man. You, you I mean, you extended uh, uh, 25 years or whatever of life, you know, um, yeah. to be yeah. here to do what you're doing today. Um, let's go to another song and then I'm going to bring on the homie sin, man. I'm glad you made it through that. Yeah. I swore. Uh, you must've told me that years ago. Um, probably did. Yep. Yep. Uh, let's see. We got step to drama and guess who's back. Uh, man, you, you pick which one you want to play now, which one you want to save for the end, man. Let's go with the, uh, step up to drama. Cause, um, that's actually a, a DJ trick beat there. But it's not one of his typical beats. He, um, I got that track uh, really when I first started messing with Trick and um, when we started working together. But I had went to Albuquerque to do that tape. He was still in Memphis. And, um, man, I just remember he had uh, had that tape on a cassette. And I heard the tape, and I was like, oh, or I heard the beat. I said, man, we got to do something with that. He's like, man, use it. And uh, it's just a simple drum machine beat. But, man, Trick just has a way of just, bumping out so that's when y'all hear that song just know that's a dj trick beat i just added the little samples in the chorus and if you want to check him out now he's pop off fresh um yes sir. one half of, yeah. of west end so um man you know, hey, did you know he, 
oh, bro, he actually won producer of the year in this country rap space, the stuff we're doing now. Um, country oh, rap hell sports. yeah. Um, yeah, they nominated him, and then people voted, and they were uh, voting online, and, man, he won it. So I just want to shout out DJ Trick, uh, Paw Paw Fresh, congrats, bro. Uh, producer of the year, man. That's an amazing accomplishment. Well, well deserved, man. That's awesome to hear. Um, man, we'll be right back. Don't go nowhere. We got King JC, Murder Master Music Show. The first thing when I got to Albuquerque that everybody asked me was, where the hell the second family at? Where them motherfuckers is in Memphis hiding like some scared biatches, you know what I'm saying? Because King JC about to take over this shit. It's an everlasting world, motherfuckers. Everlasting drama too thick. Second family eat a dick. We taking over this summer, biatch. <laughs> like this. Yeah. The I'm laying the perpetrators down to rip. You big motherfuckers, you know when you're going crazy, see the size of my dick. I'm getting rowdy in the lane of the and I'm doing that shit in my name. Now seven was good to me, but you haters us, I claim what you all thought was fake. Now looking at JC, y'all jealous, and try to label me a sellout. Cause I won't make track for free, that you family get the dick now. So if there's a click, the one with the brain, you know what your name is, fool. If I go to Memphis and see you in the street, you better know now we ain't cool. I made your career and I'll take it away, so never try to test a king. Cause if you step up, I'm cracking your head and dropping you to the concrete. Talking that smack about you, JT. Who the fuck do you think you is? You better be smart if you wanna survive. So take the hell up out my beers. Step up the drama, get your head cracked. 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 Hey, y'all, y'all hating motherfuckers. Y'all know who you is. You know what I'm saying? Lil Rock, ugly motherfucker. Don't hate on me because I hooked up with a real click. Y'all gonna be struggling forever. And I made it, motherfuckers. Suck ass bitches. A word about that motherfucker. I've been dipping in every week. You should have kept your name the same. Cause who explaining what the hell you think? And Lil Rock, I know why you call yourself little. Cause pinky fingers like nuts. That's your fundamental. Get your grip on a job Cause everybody knows that you're too weak to steal and rob But that's the first thing that you bitches beat up in your rap And now the whole world knows that you was just a bunch of crap I'm knocking you down and breaking you off See none of y'all ever was true We tried to call out the family But now all of that shit is true I'm feeding y'all free who get to make money I was the one with the plan I'm taking y'all rounds and laying them down Do you bitches understand? Get your head cracked. Step up the drama, get your head cracked. Step up the drama, get your head cracked. Step up the drama, get your head cracked. 
He uh, it was very rare for him to do that because he was just more focused on spinning records and he had his tapes that he put out, but he didn't like doing a lot of features. And so um, I remember the uh, the night we recorded Supernatural, we were all in the studio and um, uh, Pretty Tony was there with us. Uh, DJ Spanish Fly was there. Uh, man, bunch of other cats. There were a bunch of us in the studio that night. And we were really just freestyling. And Spanish Fly was on the drum machine and just banging out a beat. And he had something going. It was really nice. And so um, he was like, yeah, man, let's let's go ahead and get it. Let's let's drop a song. And I said, yeah, let, let's drop a song. Let's do it. And, uh, man, I, I can't even remember who came up with the idea for the hook. Uh, one of us, either him, me, or it could have been somebody like Pretty Tony or something. And, um, man, they, they just went ahead, got the hook recorded, and Spanish Fly came in and freestyled the entire, his entire verse on there. I think he might have punched in once, but it was amazing to see. This man did not write anything ever. He just Everything was always off the dome with Spanish Fly. So, man, it was a, a great night. I was a very young kid. To be able to rock a song with Spanish Fly is, is one of the highlight points of, of my whole rap career because he's just so legendary and iconic, you know. Yeah, right, right. And um, also, can you tell us about your, your first album, the next episode, and the song Black Haven, B-H-C, in fact? Yeah, yeah. So, um uh next episode was my number 7 solo tape. And um oh, okay. that uh I recorded most of that in 96. Um nice. I was recording those songs on my four track in my studio while I was still working with Oscar Barnes and OB Records. Um because when you're on a label, especially when they got a, a deep roster, the you know there's a lot of attention and focus isn't put on you as the artist. So I was hungry. I was always wanting to write songs, record songs. So I would just be working on songs on my own. And um, that the the next episode tape was that tape. I pretty much recorded it simultaneously as I did uh, the Straight from the Bottom number six. Uh, I just didn't put it out until I realized number six wasn't going to come out. And um, and the song Black Haven, which um, was um, definitely an iconic song, man. It, it's one of those songs. And I'm sorry, guys. I don't know. Somebody's uh, trying to blow my phone up. I hope that's not cutting out the um, the, the words. Uh, it, can you all hear me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, okay. Um, so Black Haven was a song. It was uh, representing our hood. We were all from Black Haven, BHZ, Black Haven Zone. Uh, again, I lived in Southern Hills, and um, the artist on that song with me is uh, Pistol Grip from Second Family. And he he was always the one in the group I was the most close with. He was my right-hand guy, and, uh, man, we, we were really tight. So we were sitting around and uh, talking about plans for – I think it was we were working on Killers from the Black Side at the time, and he wanted to do a song that represented BAZ. And so I think he was sitting around freestyling, and he had the idea for what ended up becoming the chorus, and um, it ends up like kind of a, a sample of his voice 
uh, is how we did it. But uh, it was it really came from him as far as the idea to do that song, and then we recorded it, and man, loved it, fell in love with it, and it, it became the first song on my number seven album. And uh, I think that track there was done with the DR5, the uh, Doctor Rhythm uh, Boss Drum Machine DR5. Yeah. Okay, right. Um, can you tell us about the, the, the Memphis Pioneers? I think about the magic or uh, the Evan Spanish Fly. Back in the day, when you got the, all the club scenes, I, I, I mean about Club No Name, Club Expo, you know, Studio G, uh, back in the day, I was there, I was there in 95, it was crazy shit. Um, can you tell us about the atmosphere of this era, especially in the 90s? In fact, 95, yeah. 96. Right, right. Um, yeah, the the atmosphere of the club scene in Memphis in the early 90s was like nothing anybody's seen unless you were there. It was, uh, I mean, magical, le legendary. I don't even know if I have a, enough <laughs> verbs to describe it, man. It was it was so amazing. Um, first of all, you had these clubs that were not large clubs, small space, and um, you have hundreds of folks packed off into them, and um, and then you have a DJ like somebody like Spanish Fly, um, and there were many DJs in Memphis at the time, but Spanish Fly was he he was the the early legendary DJ uh, that we had in Memphis and um, he would rock shows and then you had artists coming to perform so um, when artists came to perform that's when it really turned up and I mean that ended up um, inspiring 3-6 to make a song called Tear the Club Up was it was the scene that did that it was the the culture of the Memphis club scene that inspired them to even do a song like that because that's what it was when Memphis rappers hit the stage the club got tore up and um and then we also had the the gangster walking what what you would call uh juking or buck jumping uh, earlier on it was it was buck jumping and then that was Memphis Gangster Walking, which um, I think the last time we spoke, we, we kind of touched on that, where you would see the entire crowd gangster walk simultaneously, and it, it looked it, like a um, a whirlpool of people just it, going in it a was circle. Above and, it, was, it was a Bovan family at first, right? A Bovan walk before Gangster Walk back the day. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, man. Right. And, and yeah, but it like just like nothing you ever seen, brother. And I mean, again, you had to be there uh, to to really appreciate what I'm saying because my words can't do it justice. But it was something that happened at a period of time in the city of Memphis. And um, man, I mean, I, I think it influenced the whole culture. You could even go to say. It influenced folks to this day because it influenced the music, which if you look at the the hip-hop industry today and from north to south, east to west, everybody somewhat sounds like they're from Memphis or that they've been highly influenced 
from Memphis right. rap, even that, in their production. That's true. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah man. Sure. But, but uh, yeah, there was a time and place where it wasn't like that anywhere but here. Memphis was the originator of all that. And so, uh, man, I was just, I feel blessed that I got to see that before it, it went away forever. Um, not that it, it has, like, fully gone away, but, I mean, it's – Today it's just nothing like what it was back then. It's, it's nowhere near it. It's a, it's a different world, yeah. you know. Oh yeah, yeah right. So and, many uh, levels. So, so many levels. Yeah. They, there were great producers back in the day in Memphis, like Blackout, like DJ Sound, like Psycho, Low Green. Yes. Uh, uh, Psycho yeah. Evan maybe was the first week out a, a devil shit maybe. Evan before Paul with uh, OTS oh, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. when he was in uh, right. one Men of the Hour, Men of the Hour of Al Capone, OTS. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. I agree. Yes, uh, Psycho was really up on that stuff early, early on. So, uh, yeah, I don't think he really gets the credit he deserves um, for, no, for yes. really influencing that the Memphis sound in that way. But uh, he did. Yeah. Yeah. That's and what's up. You did another thing. Yeah. You, you reviewed also uh, reviewing Murder Dog back in the day with Scott. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, also. but not not quite on his level. I mean, he was the he was the <laughs> king of that stuff, man. That was that was his oh, lane. Sure. Uh, I, I was blessed to be able to you know do a, a few reviews and to uh, I think I wrote a, a article on uh, Albuquerque. Uh, as far as all the artists out there, uh, oh, New Mexico, I think I did something on New Mexico, but yeah, um, man, Scott Prez was, was he was he was the man on that stuff. Uh, I tell you what, when I got there, when I was shocked to see you and uh, uh, Al Capone there, I was like, this, this has got to be a dream, man, because you know I was already listening to you guys at that time, you know, so <clears throat> I was like, wow, this is this is dope. Yeah. We were fortunate, though, to, to be able to do that at that time because uh, we were able to turn people on to a lot of dope music, you know. That's right. That's true. Definitely. Can't forget J-Dog. He was with us, too. Um, yes, yeah. yes, he was. J-Dog. Yes, he was. You know, I uh, we got to have him on the show sometime and, and uh, chop it up with him. I'd I yes, really sure. like to hear that conversation between you two because I know um, <laughs> you both are uh, like hip hop encyclopedias, you know. So yeah. that, that would be something. But uh, JC, yeah, um, brother, I really, really want to thank you for taking time to talk to us tonight. I had a really good conversation. Um, before we go, I want to give you the floor. We're going to leave. Um, you know, uh, to guess who's back, but uh, I want to give you the floor, man. You, you, whatever you want, it's all yours, brother. Okay, uh, I appreciate that, brother. Um, I know right now I um, I just started an Instagram account under King JC the Boogeyman, so that's brand new. Just a few days ago, got that up. I'm gonna be spending a lot of time on Instagram, just trying to reconnect with all the, the fans of Memphis Rap and the underground tape collectors. Um, I've already been meeting a ton of people just in a few days, 
having great conversations with them. I've been DMing them. They've been hitting me back, and we're having great conversations. So been appreciative of that. So if anybody wants to get at me, just, man, go to Instagram. It's uh, King JC the Boogeyman, and um, I'll, I'll be there because I'm really trying to get everybody together before we drop this collection because I want to make sure all the true fans, the true collectors get a hold of it. And um, And then outside of that, I would just say, Please, if you have not checked out West 10, that's W-E-S-T-1-0, the number 10. It's for West Tennessee, but at West 10 is our group, and that's me and DJ Trick, a.k.a. Paw Paw Fresh, and we got a brand-new album out called Put Some Country in It. It's different, but it's not so different. I think y'all will dig it, so please check it out. Go to YouTube. We got our shows, uh, our concerts that we've done on YouTube, our official music videos songs, everything, interviews are all on there. So please y'all y'all go check that out. And I appreciate you. Man, that's what I'm talking about. And you're right, man. The uh music, uh when you guys hear it, I mean you guys are flipping, you you you're killing it, man. Production wise, you know, everybody get that West Ten support. Be on the lookout for this King J C playlistic entertainment um discography that's coming soon. And we look forward to that. Yes, now, this sir. is Guess Who's Back. Um, one more thing from you, Jay. Uh, kind of uh, tell us about this song as, as, as we get out of here. All right. So Guess Who's Back was on my uh, number nine album, which uh, Step Up to Drama was as well. That was called A New Beginning because at the time I left Memphis to come back to Albuquerque, I was leaving the second family to work with Everlasting Drama. That's why I called it. A new beginning. And guess who's back is just a song saying, yeah, y'all thought I was gone? Nope, I'm I'm back at it. And, um, yeah, that was a fun album. Recording that entire album was, was fun. The uh, Guess Who's Back, I, I produced it, and it was uh, with a 660 drum machine. That's about all I used on that track. And it was recorded on a Tascam 464 4-track. Uh, probably in whatever bedroom and whatever apartment I was living in in Albuquerque at the time. So, uh, yeah, man, I hope y'all enjoy it. It's 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 some old stuff, but man, uh, it, it was uh, back in the day when I was super hungry. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope y'all enjoy it. That's what's up, man. Peace out to King JC, man. We're out of here.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.